future revolutions will draw inspiration from the Paris Commune, from the Russian Revolution, from, I don't know, from the German Revolution, also the Spanish Revolution, etc., etc., the Cuba. So each revolution will draw inspiration from the past, but it will invent new forms, which are unpredictable, completely new forms. And I think this is the dialectic between the present, the past, and the future. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome and thank you for tuning in to this book launch event for Michael Lowy's Revolutions, which was recently published in English for the first time and is available at haymarketbooks.org. Today we'll be talking to the book's editor, Michael Lowy, as well as Eileen Klein from Jacobin Brazil's editorial board and Marianella D'Aprile from the Democratic Socialists of America National Political Committee. Revolutions previously appeared in French and Portuguese editions, and I had the pleasure of translating it into English. It includes chapters from various authors, including Michael, on the Paris Commune, the German, Russian, Hungarian, Chinese, Mexican, and Cuban revolutions, as well as the Spanish Civil War. Each chapter features dozens of famous and not so famous photographs uh, from the key turning points in each revolutionary process. The book explores the causes and conditions of the revolutions it reviews, as well as detailed analysis of the art and technology of photography and the role that photographers themselves play as participant observers in world events. Michael Lowy is a longtime socialist organizer and the author of numerous books, many of which are available in English, including uh, Fire Alarm, Reading Walter Benjamin's On the Concept of History from Verso, The Theory of Revolution in the Young Karl Marx, my personal favorite book in the world uh, from (laughs) Haymarket, uh, and and forthcoming uh, with Olivier Bessensonot in 2022, in the spring of 22, is Marx in Paris, Jenny's Blue Notebook, which is going to be a fascinating uh, uh, journey. So look for that one from Haymarket next year. Well, let's begin with an observation from the Russian revolutionary Vladimir Lenin, which I think is particularly relevant to our topic today. He said, what, generally speaking, are the symptoms of a revolutionary situation? One, for a revolution to take place, it is usually insufficient for the lower classes to not want to live in the old way. It is also necessary that the upper classes should be unable to live in the old way. Two, when the suffering and want of the oppressed classes have grown more acute than usual. And three, when as a consequence of the above causes, there is a considerable increase in the activity of the masses. So let's begin with a couple questions for Michael. Um, Again, Michael, the book is beautiful. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us here today. And uh, the first question is, what was the intention behind uh, this enormous project that became this beautiful book? Why study these specific revolutions and what can they teach us for today? Yeah, well, the general idea was to uh, present the story of revolutions in a somewhat different way. Uh, 
not through the classical historical analysis, but through the photographs. What the photos tell us about the revolution and how can we write the history of the revolution by interpreting a series of photos. That was the original idea behind the project. So what we wanted is to focus on a sort of subjective view of the revolution, the faces of these masses who, as Lenin said, uh, didn't want anymore to support the oppression. Yeah? So to see uh, this, uh, this lively aspect of the revolutionary process. Yeah? So that was the idea. Now, we picked the revolutions. We didn't invent anything new. We picked the classical concept of a social revolution which is the mass movement which overthrows the existing powers and not only a change of government or change from monarchy to republic, but some social transformation. In most of these cases, a socialist transformation or an attempt of socialist transformation or a transformation in the name of socialism, anyhow. Uh, but even if not, let's say, the Mexican Revolution, it didn't claim to be a socialist revolution, but it was a, a social revolution, yeah, without doubt. So that was the basic criteria. And so this is how we picked this event, starting with the Paris Commune, yeah, which we are celebrating now, the 150th anniversary. That was the first modern proletarian social revolution with some socialist elements, of course, so we started with the Paris Commune. We had a few photos from 1848, yeah, the first uh, ever photos of a revolutionary event. But the, really, the first chapter is uh, the Paris Commune. Okay. Thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Michael. Maybe just to continue that a little bit, and then I'm going to throw it over to uh, Eileen and, and Marianella. Um, the book takes, as you said, photography seriously as a, as not just a documentary process of revolution, but as a factor within revolution. Um, and um, can you talk about the impact of pictures and the availability of pictures? Because today, I think in modern society, we are so accustomed to just being constantly bombarded by billions of images. What was the impact of what was must have been in 1871, relatively few images, and then increasing as time went on with the revolutions, the availability and the different technologies of photography. How did that impact the role of ideological uh, conflict within the various revolutions on both sides? Well, I think uh, first, let me just say a word about the translation. I think uh, you did a wonderful job <laughs> translating into English. So I would like to thank you uh, for this. Thank you. And uh, now, uh, in relation to what you said, the importance of, for, of uh, photography, uh, of course, increased uh, during the years. Uh, in the Paris Commune, it was already important uh, unfortunately, also important for the counter-revolutionary side, because when the Versailles crowd uh, uh, triumphed over the Paris Commune, they used the photos of the barricades, etc., to identify the fighters and kill them. Huh? So it played also in the hands of the counter-revolution. So there, there is this both sides. Huh? 
But on the other hand, it's true that revolution, photos of revolution, inspired the people who were doing the revolution. Yeah? They saw photos and this circulated and this inspired to people to continue the struggle and so on. But it also inspired future revolutions. It means other people saw photos of the Russian Revolution and drew inspiration for, I don't know, the German, the Hungarian, uh, whatever, the Cuban Revolution, perhaps, etc. So, so th there is a, uh, a chain of continuity in the importance of, of the photos. Yeah? Uh, throw it over to you, Marianella. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you, Michael, for being here. And this is, yeah, the book is really just super impressive. I think the thing that was most striking, or one of the things that was most striking to me with the like juxtaposition of narrative and uh, photograph is actually the way in which um, the narrative can often become like pretty abstract. Um, and I think certainly for us reading in a, reading it in a context with a lot of these um, revolutions or even just events like being very, you know, far removed for us, the, the narrative can make it really abstract. And so the photographs, um, I think, capture a certain, um, it, uh, capture the sort of mass nature of these events in a way that I think the text is sometimes not, um, not totally, um, uh, capable of doing. So I wonder if there was, I mean, you have the Sontag quote at the, at the beginning, you know, about you know, the narrative being really the only way to, 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 to actually fully understand something. But I wonder if what thought was given to that, the juxtaposition of narrative and text, and especially that, you know, the, the text is quite short and then there's the timelines and really like the bulk of the, the bulk of the book is indeed images so yeah, I'm just curious to know like the the thought behind the the juxtaposing of the two. Yeah, well, we think uh, that you cannot understand a revolution without a certain narrative. If you just throw the photos, you can have kind of emotional impact. But if you want to understand the revolutionary process, you need a narrative. <clears throat> but we wanted to have a narrative which relates to the photos. Yeah which analyzes the photos and its relation to the events. So it's a photographic narrative. Yeah? So there is a, a dialectics, let's say, the photos illuminate the narrative, the narrative explains the photos. Yeah? So we wanted this relationship. And this is what, uh, what we try to do. Each one of us in a different way, we are several authors. I collected the authors, most of them are my friends and comrades. Yeah? So we did this work together. But of course, each one of us has its own style. But th this was the idea, this to, to combine narrative and the photo. But we believe that uh, we can learn a lot about the revolution through the photos. Yeah? I, in the text, in the introduction, I discussed a phrase by Brecht, which says, you, from a photo of the Krupp factory, you can learn nothing about capitalism. I agree. But there is a photo of Krupp talking to Adolf Hitler, which is a very interesting photo, which shows the complicity between big capital and Nazism. Yeah? So photos can tell us a lot about uh, historical events and, of course, revolutionary processes. Uh, Eileen, you're up. Yes. <laughs> 
first of all, thank you for having me here. Hey, Markets, Professor Michel, meu professor conterrâneo, we are Brazilians. And it's an honor to me, and I think it's a very great moment to, to Americans to have access to this wonderful book. Uh, I... Uh, and it, I think it's also a, a very good thing that it was translated by Todd, who is a great comrade. So uh, it will be a great edition, but I am part of the lucky ones because I, I have this book on my hands since 2009 and it's a great pleasure. And we have in the Brazilian edition, we have a very good um, um, text at the end from Professor uh, Michel talking about um the, also the Brazilians' revolutions is, a, is different. But I think the most remarkable thing about this book, and I think will be amazing for all the American socialists and revolutionaries, is to actually could see some image from the revolution that we learn through the books or that inspired us. So it's a very inspirational book for all uh, men or women who believe in, in the social revolution in, in the cause. And I would I like to ask to, to Professor is, Michael, do you think um, was hard to in the, the re Russian revolution uh, uh, part? Was, how was the process uh, to work with the, the real pictures and photographs and the, the photographs that have been changed through the years that we know, especially after the 40s and the 50s in, in mm -hmm. the Soviet government. How was this work and what do you think the readers can expect about this discussion from uh, which were the, the real elements in the pictures from that important period who has inspired us uh, for many, many years and was changed with, uh, through the years, let's say. Yeah. Well, uh, this is a whole chapter uh, how photographies have been falsified. Huh? Of course, the big chapter. We deal with it only in a limited way because that's not the main topic. But we know that this happened. The most famous uh, case is a picture where Lenin is talking. He's uh, above a wooden uh, platform. He's talking to the people workers, uh, soldiers, etc. And just behind, uh, a few centimeters be below, is standing Leon Trotsky. Yeah? And that's the original picture. In the corrected picture by Stalin, uh, Leon Trotsky disappeared. It's just wood. Yeah? So this is one example, but there are many others. Yeah? So that's the way history has been rewritten and the photographs have been uh, corrected and and so on. Yeah, that's. Uh, but we we mentioned this, but it's not our our main topic. Another thing is how there are imaginary photos of the revolution, which are not falsification, but they are not uh, authentic photos. Like for instance, in uh, Eisenstein's film about October. Yeah, it's a wonderful film. Yeah. Uh, also has been changed in the original edition that Trotsky appears in the, that it disappears, etc. But there are many scenes which are imaginary. Yeah, they are reconstitutions, historical. So but it's not a falsification, it's just a historical reconstitution. But, but we were focused mainly on the original photos, yeah, the, the true, <laughs> so to say, photographies. Yeah. 
Thanks, Michael. I know we only have you for a, a short time, so I wanted to shift maybe just to get your impressions about uh, today. And of course, uh, you know, you are uh, you're in Greece now, in France, in Brazil, all over the place. But we actually, it's an interesting thing today to have people on three different continents uh, discussing this book. Um, yeah. And so, one of the you talk about the the images in the book, as you said, not only reflected the revolutions as they were taking place and inspired participants in those specific revolutions, but also created a kind of image of what is a revolution. Um, the, the barricade, the flag, the, the, the individual courageous rank and filer who stands uh, out front mm. in front of the forces of, of the state. Uh, all the images we can see, the famous pictures of, of Che, the famous pictures of Pancho Villa, etc. Is that image of revolution and the the revolutions, and these are 19th and 20th century revolutions, are the elements that we think of as revolution likely to happen again in today's world? Or are we, uh, I think Marx once said something about the nightmare of the past weighing on Mm -hmm. the brains of the living. Are we imagining what the revolution is going to look like in a mm. world in which it's no longer possible to look like that. Uh, mm. So I would be interested in hearing what your, what your thoughts on right. that. Right. Well, uh, there is a phrase by Walter Benjamin, which I like very much. It says, each revolution is a tiger jump into the past. Huh? So all revolutions have a strong relation Uh, with a revolutionary event of the past. The Paris Commune related, of course, to the Paris Commune of the French Revolution. The Russian Revolution had jumped past into the Paris Commune uh, because Lenin in the April thesis said, our model is the Paris Commune. And the story is that when the Russian October Revolution uh, survived one day more than the Paris Commune, Lenin and his comrades went into the street to dance and celebrate yes, the event. So there is a strong relation to the past. But at the same time, each revolution creates something completely new, something which has no precedent. Yeah? Each revolution invents new ways to organize, to fight, to develop the revolutionary process. So I think the same will apply to the future. Future revolutions will draw inspiration from the Paris Commune, from the Russian Revolution, from, I don't know, from the German Revolution, also the Spanish Revolution, etc., etc., the Cuban. So each revolution will draw inspiration from the past, but it will invent new forms which are unpredictable, completely new forms. And I think this is the dialectic between the present, the past, and the future. And I think this is what uh, we can expect. Now, if you you permit me, I would like to quote the conclusion of the last section of the book, where I mention a postscript. I speak about present events, yeah, which are 
not revolution, but there are movements which have a powerful subversive dimension. Yeah. And I the last part, the last few phrases is about the United States. Huh? Of course, since the book is published in the United States. At the moment, this book is going to print an extraordinary semi-insurrectional, insurrectionist upsurge has broken out throughout the United States. That's a little bit exaggerated, but I, I think it has something of that. Huh? Against police violence, racism, and social injustice, <clears throat> black, brown, and white united in a popular rebellion without precedent since the 60s. I think this is true. Yeah. Is this the sign of a coming revolution or just the latest expression of the subaltern's rage against the system? Question mark. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. That's the conclusion of the book, okay? <laughs> Very, my my parents would be very very happy with that reference to that conclusion. <laughs> you, you can put it in, in music. Yeah, the conclusion. I can put it into music. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Michael. I know your time is short, so I wanted to really appreciate uh, you taking this time tonight. I know it's late your time, um, and uh, wish you all the best. And uh, just thank you thank again you. for this beautiful text and this beautiful book. And we will do our best to see that it's read by as many young socialists in the United States as, as we can. And we look uh, forward to more of, of the same from you in the future. Okay. Long live the revolution. <laughs> Long live. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. So we're going to continue now with uh, with myself and and Eileen and, and Good. Nella, Good. and we're going to um, continue this discussion about the impact of this book and focus specifically on the Brazilian and the U.S. context. And this might spill over into some other places as well. But those are two, you know, important places. Uh, in the world right now. I would venture to say that the U.S. and Brazil at the moment have two of the most dynamic socialist uh, movements in the in the world, um, which you could have said about Brazil a long time ago, but you could probably not have said about the United States <laughs> until, <laughs> until very recently. Uh, so that is nice that we are entering the fray. Um, so I just wanted to start with a couple of questions, uh, one each for Eileen and Marianella, and then we'll move into a kind of a round robin. Uh, so I'm going to start in Brazil. Uh, so, Eileen, the Brazilian state and social structure might be said to stand somewhere between the purely autocratic states against which the uprisings in the book Revolutions uh, broke out and the more advanced, in quotations, you always have to put that in quotations, the more advanced democracies of the more developed capitalist countries. What lessons from revolutions do you think are particularly relevant in the Brazilian context today? Well, Todd, that's um, an important question because I think it's uh, we can extract from the book all the inspiration necessary for the political moment that we are living here. And to be fair, our situation here is like very near to barbarism. Now, not we we are very far from the idea that we were building ourselves as a nation by the the workers party when they are ruling uh, to the an international um uh, position you know standing by uh, with the largest democratic uh, societies in in capitalism but now we are we are taking step backs uh, every day more we are facing right now um 
and uh, uh, two problems main, mainly. Like one, it's the the sanitary crisis, which is uh, it's chaotic here. We we just discovered by yesterday that our president uh, refused eighteen million doses of Pfizer vaccines uh, in last March, like one year ago, uh, last May. So. Uh, we are losing 3,000 people per day and our hospitals are full. Most of these people are the working class, uh, the poor, the, the more disparate um, classes. And at the same time, we are fighting with church, with the state and with um, the mainstream, let's say, politics who is they prefer to deal with the government than to 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 fight back. Uh, and wait for the next election. From the book, and you started, Todd, uh, quoting Lenin and in words Lenin, like the three traditional elements to define a revolution uh, and how important they are. And I think the most important thing for all our listeners right now is that to understand the revolution, and this is on the book, I think, of Michel Levy's is that it's not necessary just a very bad conditions of life to the working class. Capitalism can driven like the working class to the to the worst conditions ever. We are talking about hunger to search food on the the the, the bean cash. I don't know uh, the trash. I don't know how to say. If you go up upstairs my apartment right now, you're gonna find like Paulistanos. I am talking from the the main city of the the South American continent, very rich with a very very powerful burguesa. But you're gonna find people eat, searching food from from the trash, uh, and and capitalists can keep go, go on like it's not because they they are uh, oppressing even more and more and more that this is the automatic answer to a. a a revolution or an insurrection, mainly because revolutions are not just about insurrections. They are about a, 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 the building of a revolutionary situation. We are talking about a burguesa crisis, a, a upper classes crisis between them. They are fighting, institutions fighting, uh, crises in, in different um, sectors of society that we are starting to see this in Brazil. We have elements of this, but it's not, as Lenin say, and all the tradition Marxists, these are elements that if they are separate, they don't mean we are walking through a revolution and or a successful revolution. So the lack here in Brazil, the problem that we have most is besides the crisis is the apathy of the people. We are put in a situation that uh, we are from our own to to survive the crisis. So if you have conditions to protect yourself, you are safe. If you have not, you are going to die, like in the statistics, 3,000 per day in a 2,000 million uh, people country. So, um, and, and from the political situations in the same, the left is blocked right now. We cannot go to the streets demonstrate today, tonight, maybe we're going to have our first demonstration, like largely demonstration since the, the sanitary crisis started. And let's hope that we as a left build something good. But in general, it's a very, very hard situation. But I think this book is, is, is still inspirational to see. Yes, the path to the revolution exists in any situation. We just need to to help to mobilize the working class, to help to to 
use the fissures, you know, in the system, in the cracks in the systems to to put our revolutionary politics and and go on. So I don't know if I answer your question, Fudge, but <laughs> very good. Thank you, Eileen. Uh, it's a it's a devastating situation in Brazil. India has has pushed Brazil out of the headlines in terms of the the scale of the crisis, but people should know that Brazil uh, is suffering a death rate that is per capita twice as high as the United States and many more unrecorded deaths in Brazil than in the United States. So it is, it is an open and growing disaster. It is not the, the, there's a little bit of a sense in the United States where we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the density of the vaccinations. But in Brazil, that is a very long ways away. Um, and sorry, yeah, Todd, yeah. just but sorry, here in Brazil, we had the ability, the capacity as as uh, structure to vaccinate uh, all the population in three weeks because we have a health uh, national system, public and and we don't have the vaccines. Bolsonaro is keeping away the vaccines. We don't have the the uh, the stuff to 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 produce vaccines. We don't have vaccines. This is the disaster. You know, we are abandoned by ourselves. Exactly. And and I think, you know, you are facing the situation that I think in many ways, if Trump were still president, um, we the the richness the the riches of the United States and the and the power and the money made by the pharmaceutical companies probably would have meant that the vaccines came here faster but Trump certainly could have delayed it by six months and if he had delayed the mass vaccinations by three or six months we just barely missed a massive fourth wave in in uh, an escalating COVID crisis here um, so uh, just to, for people to understand what is happening in Brazil I think is important uh, turning to you Marianella now. Um, the United States, of course, is very different than Brazil, and it's the most stable of all historic bourgeois democracies. Uh, it's, the, it's the original uh, bourgeois democracy. The, and the kinds of social collapse and uprisings that are reviewed in the book Revolutions um, seem distant at times. Um, although Michael Lowy was right to point out that the Black Lives Matter uh, mass uh, outpouring had elements of, of those sorts of of, of uh, insurrectional, semi-insurrectional uh, 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 outbursts. Nonetheless, from the Civil War to the Black Freedom Movement and to the heyday of the Socialist and Communist Parties in the early 20th century, the U.S. is no stranger to radical politics and mass struggle. Um, on the other hand, we're now in a situation where we've got a liberal government in power, and the liberal government does seem to be doing some of the things that a liberal government ought to do. And so I wanted to see what your thoughts are on the impact of, we have this wonderful now relatively large socialist movement in the United States, and it went through Trump. <laughs> and now it is in very different territory uh, under Biden. And so how do you think that context um, will impact the socialist movement? And then turning back to the book, what use would a book like this be in that situation? Yeah, okay, great. Great and very large question. So I'll I'll start by saying that I think I would be curious to know, Todd, from you, what you think the things that a liberal government should do that are being done are. Um, I can probably guess, right? But uh, whatever. I would love to know from you. Uh, but you know, I do think I do think with Biden, we are seeing a we're starting to see maybe mm, a little bit of a turn away from the austerity that I think has really plagued the last eight to 10 years of American politics. Um, and I think that that, 
I think that that is just a symptom of uh, the lengths to which the capitalist class is having to go to to quell the kind of uprisings that we've seen over the last year, um, right? I don't think that they would do it otherwise. I, I think it's a calculation um, that's being made on their part uh, because I, I do think that last last summer in particular was probably pretty terrifying for the ruling classes um, to see such a mobilization. That said, I do want to highlight the fact that I, I think that while, I mean, I think Michael is right that the uprisings last year certainly did have sort of insurrectionary elements to them. Um, they were still very much mobilization in the sense that they were they were pretty organic. You know, I try to stay away from this word spontaneous because I think there was obviously like a, a lot of organization behind certainly the leading elements of the uprising, but a lot of it was organic and a lot of it was spontaneous. Um, and a lot of the people who were on the street um, during those months we you know we're not part of of an organization may have never been politically involved before uh perhaps have not really been politically um involved since and so i think that kind of relates to your question of um you know what is what is the socialist movement to do now um especially because you are when you talk about the socialist movement in the United States. I think now, really, what you're talking about is the Democratic Socialists of America. Just by you know virtue of like the magnitude of the size of the organization, we have almost a hundred thousand members now, um, and so it's you know much. I think on track to be the largest socialist organization in I think almost a hundred years now, um, uh, based on its size now, and so, um, and that is an organization that sort of came to be, obviously it was founded in the 80s, but it came to be in the in the form that it is now because of Trump. Um, you know, we say is Bernie, Bernie sort of inspired it, but certainly it was Trump, the reaction to Trump was what drove its membership and what drove people um, to, to become politicized and become radicalized and join this organization. And so that's that's kind of how the how the socialist movement currently has grown from this sort of reactive position. Um, and certainly we've been able to uh, accomplish a lot, um, but it is completely new territory now um, in, in the sense that, you know, we're not, um, we don't have the same kind of fodder, just completely horrible vitriol, racism, um, and, um, you know, frankly, like constant assaults on the working class of this country to react to anymore. And so I think what we're, the, the position that we're in now is really starting to look at, um, the long, taking a long view. Um, and so maybe that's, um, that's one way in which I find, I found the book to be, um, informative is that, um, certainly, certainly a lot of the narrative, but especially a lot of the images, um, show, really show the depth, um, and the depth and strength of organization required to pull off such large scale events. Um, and that is nowhere close to where we are now in terms of, um, not just in terms of socialist organization, but just, but in terms of working class organization at all. I think we're really, really far from that in this country. And I think that even if we are to accomplish even some of our more modest goals here um, in the States, um, goals that could potentially, you know, set us down the track to, like Aileen was saying, 
creating some of those revolutionary conditions, um, we are going to have to take a long view and we're going to have to take a long view that includes building the kind of depth of working class organization. Um, and so just looking at some of the images in the, in the book that, um, you know, show like masses and masses and masses of people, um, in, in ways that we just are not, I think, used to seeing at all in recent history in this country, um, are kind of, I mean, it's inspirational, but it's also certainly very daunting. Um, and I think, um, a kind of exposition of the responsibility that we have for the kind of movement that we're trying to build. Thanks, Marianella. Um, I won't keep you waiting. The, the very simple things about what a liberal government ought to do. <laughs> um, it should, it should, it should say that there are vaccines available and they can be had at these places. Um, you know, it should, in the face of, of uh, mass death, it should, it should roll out a rational, even in capitalist terms, um, even in capitalist terms, um, uh, vaccination plan. Um, it should. You know, as it has it has done actually in pretty unprecedented ways in terms of the the um, the direct subsidies to the working class. And you're right to say that this is partially in response to the crisis. Um, so even under Trump, um, they rolled out big subsidies to the working class uh, to try to both defend the consumer market, but also to prevent the, the explosions. And they weren't sure how long this was going to go on, seen as temporary measures. Um, so you can explain the Trumpian um response as a series of temporary measures. The question now is, um, with the second big stimulus package in the American Rescue Plan and uh, the potential for an even bigger plan, is this going to add up to a significant new, a new strategy by the American ruling class to both, as you said, co-opt or respond to the movements from below and find a way to solve its own internal uh, frictions, which are certainly very sharp, but not nearly as sharp as they were, say, uh, in, in the context we're talking of revolutions. Um, so I think just the basic element, decent decency might be a word for it, although the limits of, of bourgeois decency are, are very uh, narrow. Um, so just to, just to return to uh, the book, um, and I think this is a very good kind of putting this context around it, what's happening in our respective countries. Um, one of the things uh, that strikes me about this book is we, as a, as I think it's very true in Brazil, perhaps even more true in Brazil, but certainly in the United States, we are bombarded by images. We are bombarded by my students are are obsessed with TikTok and uh, you know 150 characters, and and I'm sure that there's an app which is going to have 40 characters, and it's it's so instantaneous that the specific specificity of the impact of an image um, can be lost, and so it raises the question to me of or of a text. Um, as as somebody was saying, that Mary, Marianella was saying that the text can be abstract. How do you how do you teach? How do you get a new generation of people to to understand and be inspired by the images of the past and the images that are being presented now? The uh, the, the the images of last summer's Black Lives Matter protests. Those are inspiring images um, that we want people to take uh, heart from. Uh, uh, but at the same time, to go beyond the momentary inspiration and combine deep knowledge of the past so that we can both respond to immediate crises more effectively, and as Marianella was saying, build long-lasting organizations. So what do you see are the challenges 
to doing long-term, we might call it cadre education, um, and what are the opportunities that a, that a book like this presents. But there might be other examples that you want to point to in terms of your experiences in the most effective ways to educate a young generation of socialists who can withstand the defeats and be ready to move when it's time to move. Can I? Uh, oh, go ahead. No, 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 please go ahead. Okay, sorry. No, because for me, this book, it's essentially by this way, uh, for this, for inspiration and, and this stuff. First, for two reasons. One, Marinella was talking about, because if you look behind the pictures that, of course, there is the image who is inspired itself. But if you look behind the pictures, you're going to see the deep roots in, organiza in mass organizations, in work class organizations. You can see the working class science behind those pictures. So why... What, uh, the, the, the Cuban revolution pictures, they, most of the revolutionaries are carrying guns. When in the Russian revolution, most of them were speaking in, in, to crowds, uh, were speaking to crowds, you know, doing speeches. Uh, what is the difference and why is that? What is, uh, why when it's with guerrilla, why the picture, the images of the Chinese revolutions are so different from from the Latin revolutions, for example, who are inside the books, or the book, or the Hungarian revolution. So the, the 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 history behind it's important for me to to be a uh, to education purpose, let's say, uh, understand how uh, Che Guevara was standing there with a, a weapon and why they are doing that, or uh, why the the, the mass. Um, in, you know, to understand the difference between the reality by the pictures. And second of, I think it's important for all socialist youth or, or young socialists in the world is to study and to organize yourself in a party. For me, that is very important in organizations. And for us who are already socialists and want to convince other people, for me, it's important to to build situations where the working class or the students see the power of uh, collective organization. So if you are fighting for something in your school or in your workplace on, or in your neighborhood, when you are, you are in yourself or, or you're putting yourself together in a, in a collective organization, you are achieving goals and different uh, achievements for your community or your collective. And this is the essence of mass organizations. We start from from the lower points when the real life is happening. So the workplace, the household, the, the school, the etc. Uh, and and this is important for me to to the reflection of the the, the revolutions. How we, we build this revolutionary situation is building ourselves in education, in un understanding the history, the different specifications. There is something that is, you were talking about the power of the image. Here in Latin America, in South America especially, we have um, something for me is very characteristic for us is every time one of us, let's say, from the countries uh, start a fight, the other ones will uh, light up the, the flame, you know? So we are seeing here in Paraguay, in Bolivia, and in Colombia the past few weeks, and all of us, we know, we are heavy, have our bloods, like, you know, starting to boil up. Today we're going to have the first one, but don't be surprised if Brazil, we're going to start now to to have some some street demonstrations and, and more organized fight, even though we are starting from a very... 
defeat position. You know, we are starting from from the back. We suffer a lot of defeats and through these months, but uh, we are a very inspired continent by ourselves. You know, it's very common here in in Latin America. And when one starts, the other one will say, "Es eso, compañero. Let's go." <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Eileen. And Mariano, your thoughts on, on how to, the, the combination, the impact of, of education, of images, of action, how does that all work together in your experience? Yeah, well, I wanted to speak I, I, directly to the U.S. context because, you know, the movement, the socialist movement in the U.S. is like, I mean, this current socialist movement, like I was saying, is still really, really young. And so, of course, I think there is there is a kind of... Um, impatience i think um or which is like i think uh, you know driven out of a lot of energy um and for and fervor and um i think that kind of energy and fervor i think often um can lead to like pretty quick disappointment especially you know given the the magnitude of the the enemy that we're facing up against um and i think the best way to combat that in my experience has been to um turn to history um, and to situate and contextualize our struggle as part of a, you know, now centuries long struggle. Um, and also to, um, compare our, our current moment to, to past, you know, historical or, or revolutionary moments. Um, and again, to kind of, to, to sort of contrast or compare those situations and, you know, kind of help people understand, um, that this kind of thing just doesn't happen overnight. Right. Um, and I think that that, um, f for me, that has been, I think the most important, most formative thing in terms of, um, getting people, giving people the kind of confidence to understand, uh, what it is that we're taking on. Um, and then I think, you know, additionally to that, obviously political education is really super important. Um, just in terms of um, giving, you know, socialists the confidence to turn their ideas into a strategy and tactics that can actually be actionable in the world. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think this, this book um, to kind of piggyback onto what Aileen was saying, um, this book does have that kind of, um, this quality of being sort of hyper concentrated. So you get this like flash of multiple things at the same time. And you're, I think something that I was really struck by is both the kind of the universal threads that kind of span across all of the revolutions that are covered here. Uh, but also the really, really high like specificity of each one. Right. Um, and the different conditions that, that revolutionaries were having to respond to, um, um, and the different um, tactics um, and the different relationships, you know, frankly, that they all had with each other. Um, and so, again, I think that that um, giving people a sense of what the history is in that sense, and then also situating ourselves as part of that history as sort of in, in many ways, like heirs to that history and in many ways, torchbearers of the responsibility to keep the struggle going. Thanks very much. I think that's an actual wonderful way to, to bring this to a close. So I just wanted to thank um, Eileen and Marianella for a 
for joining us today and, and Michael Lowy for his wonderful book. I'm putting it in the screenshot so you can see it. I think that the Haymarket crew, the crack Haymarket crew has uh, photos from the book displaying as we speak. You can get the book at haymarketbooks.org. Um, and I would encourage you to get one for yourself and buy one for a friend. Uh, socialist sharing is caring. So um, thank you very much again, comrades, for joining us. Thank you to the crew at Haymarket. Haymarket Books. Thank you to uh, Michael Lowy and um, get your copy of Revolutions today and check out all the other wonderful stuff at Haymarket Books. So thank you very much, comrades. Good afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.